FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. I'm grateful to all of you for being with us for today's show. We have so much, so much to talk about. I'm going to try to get the show started, get through as many topics as we can. And fortunately, I have a wonderful panel to uh, move us along. I've always loved it when we get to have political science professors on the show because their work in analyzing the politics of the day, looking at the past, thinking about the future is so important. And so that's what we have today. Um, uh, The unofficial dean of political science professors in Georgia and beyond, uh, Charles Bullock, is with us. Um, Chuck, it's really a pleasure to have you back today. Thanks for being here. Always good to be with you, Bill. Thanks for the opportunity. And um, we have with us two of Emory University's uh, top political science professors as well. Uh, political scientist uh, Alan Abramowitz, now Professor Emeritus of Political uh, Science, but you're never going to retire, Alan. There's just too much to talk about, and I know you're going to keep doing it. Hope so. I, I, and I hope to continue <laughs> participating in, in whatever venture you're involved in. <laughs> Well, th- thank you for saying that. And we're always welcoming, but glad to welcome back Andre Gillespie, who is a professor of political science, too, of course, at Emory, but also the director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference. Hi, Andre. Great to have you here. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So let me start, if I may, with it. We'll, we'll do the first story kind of quickly, but but the reason I want to turn to it is that I think it to some extent, dispels some of the concerns that people, many of them Democrats, had when the legislature in the aftermath of the 2020 presidential election here passed a series of new voting laws that many believe would eventually suppress the votes, particularly of minorities and and Democrats in, in many cases. One aspect of that law was it put into place Uh, the ability of the state to take control of local election boards um, if it was found by a performance review panel that the local election board wasn't doing its job properly, was not in compliance with laws. But here's the problem. The only county uh, in which uh, an investigation was initiated was Fulton County. A group of Republicans in the legislature called for the performance review Fulton, obviously the most important uh, uh, county in the state in terms of Democratic voters. And there were a lot of fears that this was going to be a move for the state to take control of the election board. Uh, Charles Bullock, yesterday, the state election board, which has responsibility for overseeing this, after looking at the performance review, said unanimously, no, Fulton County is making great progress. They're moving forward. We're going to allow them to continue running their own elections. And I bring it up at the top of the show because at least it's one example 
that not all of the most dire predictions about what that law uh, did in 2020 have come true. Well, that's exactly right, yeah. And um, Fulton County has had all kinds of problems in the past, and things seem to go reasonably well, especially when you consider this as an Operation Election Day run largely by volunteers, people who are not that well-trained. And so you'd expect just some human error crop up, but nothing big, nothing untoward, nothing malignant here. And so, yeah, the board, um, state board, acted responsibly and saying, you're doing a good job. Keep it up. Continue to to get better at this. Andra? So while I recognize that this is a good uh, ruling, um, and I do want to acknowledge the ways that I think Fulton County got the wake-up call from the law and, you know, took really, really concerted efforts to try to make sure that it improved uh, the delivery of election services. I think the thing that that still worries me about this bill is that there's still the possibility for abuse. I think what we are benefiting from is that the right people are serving on that oversight board. And these are people who are taking their job seriously. The question and the fear that I have is what happens if you have hyperpartisan people who end up on this board and then they just start making arbitrary decisions. And then, you know, if they are abutted by a legislature, which doesn't look like this now, but a legislature that's even more polarized and even more slanted to one side or the other, they could make decisions that are actually uh, ending up, up being political decisions and not decisions kind of based on the merits of whether or not a county in question is actually behaving. Um, in a way that's inappropriate. And so I think this is another reminder that sometimes it's the people who matter in addition to the rules that they have at their disposal that matters. And and and, and we are fortunate in this case that we have people who have acted with integrity. Alan? Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. Um, I mean, I think w- there is a need for some oversight of the uh, conduct of local uh, election boards. Um, there have been problems in, in the past. The concern here is that you have a body that is uh, made up you know, uh, in a partisan fashion. There's you know, appointed uh, um, you know, by um, partisan elected officials. And are they going to behave professionally? In this case, it appears they have. I wonder why they're not investigating the actions of some of the other local election boards um, where there have been some pretty questionable things uh, done, for example, allowing access uh, to the election equipment, to uh, partisan election deniers who were allowed to come in and take election equipment out, uh, and and yet we haven't, as far as I know, we haven't seen any uh, investigation into those uh, activities that really probably should be investigated. Yeah, Chuck, that's, we're talking about answer. Coffee County now. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Coffee can answer. I think uh, Alan's question here. Uh, as I understand it, to launch one of these things, it has to be come from legislators. So if you've got a small rural county like Coffee County, which probably has one state rep and one state senator, uh, you're not going to have that kind of bipartisan situation you have in a Fulton or a DeKalb where you could have members of one party launching yeah. it. So if you saw something like this being launched in, say, a county with only one party, uh, it might be because there's just some kind of fight between the legislator and the people running that school, running the elections in that county. So, yeah, it's not that these things get these investigations get launched by an independent commission or something which looks back and says, looking at the entire state. Yeah, here is a problem in this county. Something needs to be done about. It. No, it's got to come out of the legislative delegation. Yeah. And that's I think that's uh, a problem. I, I, mm-hmm. 
Andra? Yeah, I mean, that, that's the legislative flaw that that people are going to mm-hmm. use their own biases in deciding when to be able to bring this up. And if structurally it's small and the legislators are of the same party as the people who are running the county elections board, they're going to use their position to try to hide and cover. And this is the thing that people took like were concerned about during the debate about SB 202, that these types of biases were going to come in, in, in into play. I actually have survey data that suggests that like, like people recognize that coffee county was a problem right and the idea that the legislators wouldn't take that responsibility to the state legislator because they're you know they're wearing the same jersey is mm-hmm. the thing that i think is 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 the is the fatal flaw of, of the bill even if oversight may not necessarily be the worst thing in the world yeah i think andra i'm really glad you caution us about assuming that this is what the future will look like that this may be uh, the result of a board and a state board that is made up of the right people i should say that Edward Lindsay, a frequent panelist to people who listen to the show regularly here on on Political Rewind, is a member of that board. And he's always been a, uh, I think it's fair to say, listening the way Edward talks about politics, a, a smart, uh, bipartisan, uh, leaning um, conservative. Um, so it is important to say that things can change. But But in the meantime, Charles, to finish this off, at least we know that in a county that brings in more Democratic votes than any other in the state, there is not going to be a state takeover that could, in fact, in some ways influence how voting is handled and how votes are counted and all of that and bring suspicion to the Democratic votes in Fulton County. Right. Yeah. I mean, elections are partisan. We expect partisanship to be there. But we don't want it to dominate the situation. It looks like it was well tamped down and no problems yesterday, that ruling. Okay. Um, thank you for that. I want to move on to another story that affects um, those of us who happen to live in the Atlanta metro area. But, but I've been told repeatedly by listeners across the state that um, the Atlanta Police Training Center controversy, while um, affecting people here more than, say, in Savannah, Columbus, Macon, whatever, has been a story they've followed uh, pretty closely. Alan Abramowitz, in the aftermath of the Atlanta City Council voting, uh, I think it was 11-4, to uh, fund uh, the police training center, uh, $30 million plus out front, which was their share, plus another $30-plus million in a leaseback arrangement that will uh, play out over a period of uh, a number of decades. So it's more than 60 plus million dollars. This came, Alan, after more than 300 people testified in a marathon 17 hour session at city council, and virtually every one of them, some more heated than others, objected to the move to move, go forward with the police training center. In the aftermath of that, an organization opposing the police training center said, we are going to ask for a referendum. We want a referendum. We want the voters of the city of Atlanta to determine whether this should go forward. Okay, so that's where things have stood. But now there are two new stories. Number one, the organization that has called for the referendum had to go to the city clerk's office and get approval for getting a a referendum initiative moving. The city clerk's office first rejected it for a technical reason. It was missing a line in the petition request and then uh, subsequently uh, shut down the possibility that this 
petition could this this referendum could go forward the first step of it getting a pr- approval to do a referendum and it's up in the air and now that group is going to court to say come on this is an important referendum the city clerk can't stop it well i suspect that the court will in fact rule in favor of those seeking to put this on the ballot however that doesn't necessarily mean that they'll be successful um uh, so assuming the court allows them to go forward the problem they face is that as i understand it the uh the law requires a, a very large number of signatures and those have to be validated um and usually you have to get a lot more signatures than the actual number required in order to ensure that you have enough valid signatures um you know so given the requirements that here i i think it looks uh somewhat unlikely that they'll be able to put this on the ballot um which might be unfortunate i mean it would be uh pretty interesting to see what the results of such a referendum would be because you know my guess is that this overall uh electorate in the city of atlanta is pretty divided uh on on this question um the people who showed up for that hearing uh certainly were overwhelmingly on one side but that you know doesn't mean that that that's the way uh, public opinion is divided overall in the city. That was a probably a pretty unrepresentative uh, group of folks who, sh- who showed up that uh, that day, that day, that night, the next morning, <laughs> until yeah. it finally yeah. ended. <laughs> um, Andre, uh, Alan's right. It would require seventy thousand plus people uh, to approve uh, a referendum, and the mayor's office at this point is taking great pains to say, "Look, the city clerk is totally separate from our office." They're an independent um, uh, uh, from our control. But the problem here is, in, it, it seems to me, Andra, is this just appears on the surface of it to be uh, a way to, uh, to, to block this referendum. And um, it's going to raise even more questions among those who oppose so-called cop city. Yeah, I mean, so... What we see is is that the activists have have taken a plan B and they are encountering obstacles and they're now getting earned media behind the actions of of, of the city clerk. Uh, and so I don't know what the clerk's you know angle is on this, but you know if their intention was to stop this discussion, it's not going to be successful because it's going to end up looking bad on the city as a whole, even if that really doesn't have anything to do with what goes on in the mayor's office or in city council. Um, on the other hand, though, if this does go to a referendum, um, you know, it is not clear sort of how that referendum would go. I should shout out my colleagues, uh, Michael Owens and Zach Peskowitz, who did include mm-hmm. questions about Cop City in a recent survey. And what they found was basically an even split. So it's within the statistical margin of error um, of folks who oppose versus those who support Cop City. Um, and I can't remember what their universe is, if it's registered voters or if it was residents of the city. But either way, since there wasn't a referendum, they weren't doing likely voters. And I think that they're in lies the rub. So the activists are going to try to mobilize to get as many people out. But I think the question is, do they actually, do the people who oppose Cop City, are they going to be galvanized to show up to vote in a regular election where this could actually be included on the ballot? And they may not make up the same kind of proportion of the universe of the people who are going to show up on an election day. So they're going to do their best based on how they mobilize for that city council meeting to try to get as many people out as possible. But I think the question is, are the types of people who oppose Cop City more likely to be low propensity voters than the ones who will show up faithfully to municipal elections? 
And that's right. They have to be voters in the city of Atlanta. Plus, I believe I'm correct in saying that should they get the requisite number of signatures and get them approved, I think this goes on the ballot in the school board election in the fall. And that isn't exactly the kind of election that tends to draw a lot of voters uh, to uh, the polls. Um, Chuck, the, the other development in this story is the city of Atlanta is divided into uh, a number of what's so-called neighborhood planning units, which have a lot of say in things that happen within their own communities, development projects um, and the like. And we, the, the, we now know that a majority of the NPUs have said they would like to see a referendum, even those that aren't in the neighborhood, in the area of where this training center will be built, because the training center is going to be built on property in DeKalb County. Well outside the city of Atlanta. Yeah, what bothers me about this is that, and this is part of a broader problem, I think, for the country, and that is we never come to a final decision. If you don't like the way the election turned out, you continue to fight and push back against that. I mean, here this has been debated. You know, there's been hundreds of people have shown up and testified against it. There's been an election since this whole idea was broached. Uh, The individuals, the council, the mayor, uh, I don't remember how big an issue it was in the election, but certainly it could have been something that could have been used to defeat them and replace them. Uh, so you know, it's been an open process. A decision has been made, and yet it continues to to drag out. And so this makes it very difficult, not just in this case, but for governments to move forward at any level and to make any kind of changes and to build anything because nobody wants it in their backyard uh, so I guess that's what I find frustrating a- a- about this. And not that I live in the city or it's going to impact me at all, but it just seems to me this is a sign of problems we have when it comes to addressing any kind of concerns that there are going to be people who are going to oppose it and they're going to fight it to the last uh, you know, rampart that they can defend. And so it, you know, I think it's a problem for, for our country uh, making any kind of policy decisions and carrying them out. All right. Um, thank you for that conversation. Uh, you know what, um, Chase McGee, why don't we do this? Why don't we get our first break of the show out of the way right now? Because we're going to move on to a number of issues that have national uh, significance, um, as well as a few more uh, state issues. So let's take our first break and Political Rewind. We'll be back, be back with more in just a moment. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Political science professors Andrew Gillespie, Alan Abramowitz, and Charles Bullock join us for today's Political Rewind. Andrew Gillespie, uh, we're nine days from the end of June, and traditionally we know that the U.S. Supreme Court uh, issues its uh, rulings by the end of the month, and of course they quite often, as they did with Dobbs uh, a year ago, uh, reserve some of their most important impactful decisions until the very end. And I'd love to start with you and talk about several of them we're anticipating uh, coming up. And and perhaps, and the one that so much 
of the country is looking at. And the three of you as professors at universities in Georgia must be watching especially carefully is the Supreme Court will soon issue a ruling on whether um, they can use, uh, universities can use race as one of the elements of deciding on who is admitted and who is not, the idea being that by using race as one criteria, you allow for a more diverse student body. The case comes from Harvard and the University of North Carolina. And according to most court watchers who saw this case unfold at late in, 20, in October of 2022, uh, the courts uh, seem to be leaning toward disqualifying race as a, uh, a, a reason for, a, a, one of the reasons for admissions. Andra? Yeah, I mean, this is something that I've paid a lot of attention to, um, in part because I study race, um, also in part because I have been involved for actually a number of years in alumni activities, usually targeting African-American students or talk, talking about African-American issues. So this is uh, is something that is 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 near to, and dear to my heart, like my own life has been impacted by rulings with respect to affirmative action um, and things that, that that my universities were allowed or were not allowed to do as a result of it. And sometimes I was, you know, sort of directly impacted by those. So I think the question is, and in universities have been thinking about this uh, for the last year about, okay, what does uh, post-affirmative action college admissions process look like? Because that's the first place that this is going to be directly affected. I'm going to teach, and and and, and Chuck's going to teach, and Alan is going to teach whoever shows up in the door. But um, and, and we don't have a say in kind of who we teach, but the admissions offices do, and they do have an interest in diversity. How do you you uh, sort of honor that interest in diversity while not being able to use a key identity marker. And so, you know, I expect that there are going to be changes across universities. Uh, you know, one, they, you know, aren't going to ask people to check off race or force them to, to, to do that. Um, you know, we could see people, you know, trying to add pictures or, um, you know, in particular, I think a big question is going to be because it's such a sticking point, how to use uh, standardized test scores. Um, and in particular, in the last couple of years, lots of schools went test optional during COVID just because it was hard to get people to a, a site where you could proctor an exam and make sure that kids didn't cheat. And those students are now sophomores and juniors, and we've seen kind of how they've been able to perform and whether or not people have been able to accurately predict their performance just based on their high school transcripts and activities. And so what I suspect is, is, is that the standardized testing industry is going to look very, very different because a lot of schools are probably just going to get rid of that so that you can't use that marker of, hey, white or Asian kid got 1500 on their SATs, but they didn't get in. But like black or Hispanic kid with like 1300 got in. That's not fair. So um, it, it's going to become a lot more complex. And I think what we're going to look be interested in next year is whether or not the proportion of people getting into elite universities uh, looks different um, because we saw that happen in California after Prop 209 in the 1990s. So there's a, a whole lot that's kind of riding on this. And, and of the outstanding cases, this is the one that I'm probably the most interested in. Yeah, uh, schools are looking for all kinds of things. Um, and the more attractive ones have far more applicants than they can possibly accept. And probably, not just probably, certainly, they have far more applicants, all of whom are well qualified, who would succeed, who would do well within the school. So how do you go about making those kinds of choices? We also know that schools will allow far more people to give them uh, 
office of admission, then they expect you're going to show up because they know that everybody you, you accept is going to show up and there's some real competition here. And what will be interesting to watch will be after this decision comes down, and if indeed the assumptions are correct that uh, the affirmative action uh, efforts are going to be struck down, uh, how do the how do the Democrats handle this? And one of the interesting elements here is what we see with the polling, and that even among most Democrats, they're not in favor of the idea of affirmative action. Now, again, they may be in favor of some elements of it, but if you throw out the term affirmative action, that's not a popular word with uh, Democrats, Republicans, anybody else. So what Democrats may fall into a trap of doing is trying to make a big deal of this. But if they're doing so, you may be appealing to the base, but it's not something that's going to help them refuse to a general election. Alan? Well, I think I think there, there I think there are ways of, of trying to mitigate the effects of this. Um one would uh, first thing to keep in mind here is that um you know, college admissions have always been based on factors that have nothing, a little or nothing to do with academic merit. Um, so for and and some of these uh, factors uh, weigh pretty heavily at times and actually tend to result in, uh, you know, in, in making it more difficult for uh, people from non-traditional backgrounds to to get into college. For example, um, you know, alum, alumni pre preferences for alumni, uh, children of alumni, that is. Um, uh, I mean, that that's uh, a pretty significant factor. Uh, 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 preferences for uh, children of donors, of, uh, of those who make large uh, donations. Um, you know, these are things that uh, are also uh, taken in, that they're also considered, and, and, and the Supreme Court doesn't seem to be too concerned, or the courts don't seem to be too concerned about those uh, factors, even though they have nothing to do with academic merit. So, uh, I think what you'll see is it's very likely. I think that the court is going to, in fact, uh, disallow the use of race as a as a factor, uh, based on everything we know about the court. Although they sometimes surprise us, um, but uh, you'll see. I think uh, uh, a response to this may involve uh, discounting test scores uh, or, or eliminating the use of standardized testing or reducing its impact or weight. Uh, and possibly uh, putting greater weight on socio uh, other socioeconomic factors such as, you know, uh, uh, wealth and income, uh, uh, which could be considered and which might be less controversial as well. Andre, before we leave this, uh, the affirmative action question, let me just quote uh, a couple of the things that the conservative justices on the court asked in the, uh, uh, in the, uh, uh, when they heard this case. Um, here's Clarence Thomas, Justice Clarence Thomas. I've heard the word diversity quite a few times, and I don't have a clue what it means. It seems to mean everything for everyone. Justice Alito uh, talked about the, quote, unrepresented minority. What does that mean, Alito asked? Um, what's a zero? A, he went on to say a zero-sum game means that there's going to be advantages to one group that will disadvantage another, and some of those people in the disadvantaged groups who may deserve an opportunity to attend a college are not going to get in. So that's where the conservatives on the court are headed with this. It sounds like they're trying to espouse an ethos of colorblindness. 
um, particularly Justice Alito um, in particular. And, and, and knowing how uh, Justice Thomas's dissent um, was in the Gratz and Grutter versus Bollinger cases, so in particular uh, with the Grutter versus Bollinger University of Michigan Law School case that still allowed for the use of affirmative action so long as it was considered in a holistic fashion. Um, this is something that some conservatives believe isn't narrowly tailored to meet a compelling state interest in order to meet the strict scrutiny standards that would allow you to consider race just because race, considering race is inherently discriminatory kind of in American jurisprudence given our history. Um, and I think the question is, and I, and I think what you're also hearing kind of in that discussion of 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 a zero sum game, right, is that somebody uh, loses out and it becomes a question of whether or not it's people who are from the more privileged and dominant position who are always losing out. Uh, but we don't ask how people got into those privileged positions. And there is this sort of idea about thought diversity and the idea that conservatives are discriminated against in modern academic spaces. Um, and um, I mean, I think we can have that type of discussion um, about whether or not uh, diversity of thought and perspective is not considered um, in college admission. Um, usually when people are considering the holistic standard, I tend to go back to Baki, which, you know, is probably on the verge of being overturned here. Uh, and there, Lewis Powell was talking about not just race, but he also mentions that putting a diverse class together means talking about people who have different talents and also people who are coming from different parts of the state or different parts of the country. So, uh, you know, if you if, if, if you are at, in an urban environment like we are here in Atlanta, right, inviting, you know, ad, uh, offering admission to somebody from southwest Georgia, um, you know, from a more rural area or from rural Iowa adds diversity to the table and people will learn from that. That's not actually being jeopardized by this. I don't think they're going to sort of say that you can't consider anything other than people's academic performance um, in schools, but I think it becomes a question of, do you actually enhance the type of extra diversity that you want to see by like by targeting racial diversity in these rulings? And and I just, I, I don't know if I just, I agree with the conservative justices on this one. All right. Let, let me let me very quickly, and we're going to move on, um, point out, I'm glad, Andre, you mentioned Bob because I think what we're seeing here is, once again, if the court rules against affirmative action, um, we're seeing another example of this being a court that is not interested in the concept of uh, stare decisis. They overturned Roe 50 years later. They look like they might be overturning Baki. Um, and, and so this is a court that is more than willing to throw out precedent and uh, strike out in a new direction. So we will go there ahead. There's stronger real ground quick. on this one just because of Gratz and Grutter and 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 uh, Sandra Day O'Connor saying we probably only need this for another 25 years, and we're 20 years into that ruling. Okay, um, that should be coming up again sometime in the next uh, eight or nine days. Um, Alan, um, I think this is a, a another case that would be of particular interest to those of you who are political science professors. Um, the Supreme Court is going to rule on what is called the independent state legislature theory based on a case in North Carolina. Um, and what they have been asked to do is look at whether the United States Constitution, in fact, empowers legislatures to make decisions about drawing district lines in federal elections without interference from the state courts, independent state legislatures, make the decision and the courts cannot uh, uh, interfere 
with what they've decided. And in North Carolina, it became important because the court there wanted to say to North Carolina, your lines are bad. We've got to redraw them to respect diversity and the like. This is a huge decision that could have massive consequences, Alan. Yeah, this is a, uh, a, a really important case. Um, this is uh, this independent state legislature uh, theory is is something uh, it's, it's an idea that's being advanced by uh, some uh, conservative legal scholars, um, and in the and it's it's sort of supported by uh, you know uh, other conservative groups and interests, uh, and it, it would not only affect redistricting; it could potentially uh, also affect the selection of presidential electors uh, in the event that there is a dispute mm. um, over the outcome of an election. Uh, the idea here, or the, the theory, says that the legislature is is ultimately up to the legislature to determine uh, the uh, who the uh, presidential electors are, um, and the legislature could therefore step in uh, and decide that in the event that they there's some dispute over the results of the popular vote in the state, um, they could choose their own slate of electors uh, and just send that slate of electors. Uh, you know, to uh, <clears throat> to the uh, uh, to uh, the, the send their votes in instead of the votes based on the on the popular vote in the state, and, and this is sort of along the lines of, of of what was happening here in Georgia with the so-called fake electors. Um, so, uh, you know, this is something that uh, it, this is a theory, by the way, that's uh, uh, considered. You know, it, it's. It doesn't have very broad support in the legal community, I don't think. I think this is something that's being advanced by a pretty small minority of legal scholars. But, um, you know, if, if, the, if the court rules in their favor, this could have pretty far-reaching consequences. Chuck, it's yeah, based on it a slightly like... flimsy... Cl Go ahead. You talk, you talk first, please, Professor. Oh, I'm, I'm going to say the same thing you're going to say, Bill, that, yeah, it doesn't have much support in the legal community. It doesn't have it's a very thin read to try to find in the Constitutional Convention to base this argument on. So, yeah, there was at least one delegate who argued it, but it, no indication it was a majority view back in 1787. And it certainly flies in the face of separation of powers. And uh we know at the federal level, which is often the model for what usually happens in the states, that, yeah, the idea was that you were going to try to prevent any kind of tyranny by having these three different branches that could check one another. So the idea that you make the legislature the supreme, and not only supreme, but supreme and unchecked branch of the government is pretty outrageous. And the case comes out of North Carolina, I have to wonder, would that case have been filed today? Now that the North Carolina Supreme Court has a 5-2 Republican majority, because when it got filed, it had a 4-3 Democratic majority that threw out yes. the redistricting case. And now what's happened is this 5-2 majority has overturned the decision of the 4-3 Democratic majority. So, again, perhaps in line with what's likely to happen with the Milligan case, which y'all talked about last week, uh, you know, is the North Carolina Republican legislature going to be able to go as far as they might want to do in terms of uh, clawing back some of those seats, which right now it's a 7-7 Democratic-Republican delegation. Republicans would like to see something more along the lines of a 9-3, excuse me, a 10-4 or a 9-5 kind of split. So there's a lot right, of politics right. tied up in this and not much history to support it. Well, and, and let's bring it back, as Alan did, to what happened in Georgia. Um, where you had Donald Trump and his allies pressuring members of the Georgia legislature to throw out the Biden 
uh, 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 appointed electors and instead go with Trump electors and send them to Washington. And and it it, it obviously it, it didn't move forward, Andre, in the way that the Trump people would have liked it to. But there's nothing it says that it couldn't have and that it could put the state in this position, as Alan pointed out, of sending electors who do not represent the votes of the people of the state. Yeah, I mean, I think the problem of this is of the independent legislature theory is that it's at the state level pretty much neuters the idea of separation of powers, as as as, as Chuck has said. So the idea that a, a judicial branch at the state level can't sort of provide a check and balance to a a, a legislature if they were to get out of line, um, and that that the judicial branch can interpret the state constitution to try to adjudicate laws, which is what they are there and intended to do, is something that is dangerous, right? It actually ends up uh, sort of amplifying the role of the state legislature kind of within state politics and pretty much neuters the judicial branch. And that's not uh, that that's not a comforting thought. Um, like that's not sort of how the framers intended for this to work, even the framers of state constitutions. And if you have the wrong people in positions of power in these positions, they could then do things that would be considered autocratic and have very little check on what's going on. So you'd have the executive branch within the state of governor trying uh, to check things. And when you have super majorities, like the, the governor might not even be able to check that. Real quick, Alan, because I got to get to a break. Uh, I'm just going to say I would be surprised if the court actually goes along with this. I mean, even even this very you know conservative court, um, because if, effectively what the court would be deciding is that courts don't matter, um, you know, at, at the state level, and it's it's hard for yeah, me to imagine that they would they would actually agree with that. Yeah, rep- uh, reporters and, and other observers who were in uh, the the uh, uh, arguments for this case think the case, the court is pretty splintered on this and are skeptical about them uh, taking that action. Um, One of the other cases, and I'm going to pass on it today because we still have time to talk about it as the (laughs) week goes on, is an important case about LGBTQ uh, rights as opposed to freedom of speech. A Colorado web designer Mm -hmm. who does weddings says, I do not want to offer my services to uh, um, couples, same-sex couples. Uh, the lawsuit argues the difference between whether she has a free speech right to not honor a, a, a same-sex couples as opposed to the rights of, uh, of same-sex couples to have equal treatment under the law. We'll talk more about that, but that, too, has some significance. Let's get to our final break of the show. We'll be back in just a moment with more. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Quick program note, I'm really thrilled uh, that tomorrow we're going to continue our occasional series of programs in which I get a chance to talk to thought leaders in Georgia and beyond. And my guest tomorrow is the former mayor of the city of Atlanta, Shirley Franklin. And I am going to be, I'm going to throw my biases right out there. I think Shirley Franklin has been a remarkable public leader in Georgia and beyond for many years. And I'm thrilled that she's going to come on the show, talk about her life, her career, her vision for what she thinks could happen in the future to this state, to the country. So Shirley Franklin uh, joins me for our show uh, 
tomorrow. Um, Alan Abramowitz, you, you who always send far too many ideas for things that we're ever going to get to in one show, <laughs> one of them that you sent, and I think it's a legitimate thing to talk about it at the very least briefly, is the plea deal that the Department of Justice uh, reached with Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden, of course, has been under investigation for a very long time for any number of of potential criminal wrongdoings in, you know, including bribery, including um, using his father's office uh, for financial gain. But when it came right down to it, DOJ was willing to cut a deal with him um, around the fact that he bought a gun illegally, which could get him a 10-year sentence, I believe. And um, the other had to do with tax violations. He didn't pay his taxes in a timely manner for two years. Why is this worth talking about? Because Republicans are outraged. They say that a week after or so after Donald Trump has been indicted on criminal charges by DOJ, Hunter Biden is getting a break. Although, one last point, the federal prosecutor in Delaware issued a statement yesterday saying, yes, this is happening, but the investigation is ongoing. Alan? That's right. So we don't know for sure if this is the end of the story uh, as far as any judicial proceedings involving Hunter Biden. It may or may not be. Um, It's important to keep in mind here that the prosecutor in this case was a Republican prosecutor who was appointed by Mm -hmm. Donald Trump. Um, There is no indication that the president uh, or the attorney general played any role whatsoever in this decision or had any involvement in this case. Um, it, it appears that President Biden and the Attorney General Garland have been taking great pains to fact, stay away from this and, and, and demonstrate that they are not they are not trying to influence any decisions involving Hunter Biden. Uh, it's pretty clear that for Republicans, you know, Hunter, Hunter Biden is uh, their cost celeb. I mean, this is this is something that they've been harping on and focusing on. And, and I know regardless of what happens in this case, they're going to continue with this. They're going to continue investigating Hunter Biden um, and 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 putting forth claims uh, about a potential potentially illegal behavior, trying to bring the president into this. Um, so far, there's no evidence that President Biden is in, you know, involved in any illegal activities involving his son. Uh, but, you know, this is an attempt, I think, simply to counteract uh, all the negative publicity surrounding the recent indictments of Donald Trump uh, and some of the activities he's been involved in in the documents case, in, in the insurrection case, in other cases, uh, and and try to sort of distract attention away away from that and try to somehow put these things side by side and say, hey, they're being treated unequally. Well, the, it, to my mind, there's, there's just no comparison between the issues here, uh, what the president former president was involved in and what Hunter Biden was involved in, uh, let alone President Biden. So, but there's no doubt that that the Hunter Biden story is not going away. The investigations will continue uh, in the in the Congress, in the House, if if in regardless of what happens uh in the courts. Chuck? Yeah, I think maybe the comparison I would make uh, not against Donald Trump and whatever he's been accused with, but you know, what happens in other cases like this? If you have a similar situation, it's not Hunter Biden would they get the same kind of treatment? Would they get uh, let off with uh, without going to prison, uh, be sent to a kind of a program to uh, make sure they don't buy a gun and don't do drugs? So that'd be one point. The other point is, apparently Hunter isn't the brightest light on the Christmas tree. 
in that when he doesn't pay his taxes, it's 2017 and 2018. His father's not the vice president at that point. So he's doing it with a Republican White House and Republican Department of Justice and Republicans in charge of IRS. So, yeah, so it uh, you know, doesn't look like he was trying to get any kind of favorable treatment by not paying his taxes, thinking he could get away with it as the son of a former vice president. He was dealing with addiction. No, you know, I mean, he, was, he had some serious drug, drug addiction problems at the time. Yeah. Which is why yeah, which I mean, is I, why he bought... He, go ahead, Andra. Yeah, I mean, so I think there are a couple of things, right? I want to appeal to the Judeo-Christian principle of not visiting the sins of the father upon the children or vice versa, um, mm -hmm. right? Which seems to be kind of lost here. This is not Joe Biden not paying his taxes, it's Hunter. Um, and while I think what Hunter is doing is completely indefensible, until we know that Joe Biden had something to do with it, this really should not affect his presidency. Hunter is a grown man. He is a middle-aged man. He is responsible for his behavior and activities, right? And and and, and this really shouldn't have any bearing on Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I, I think has been really striking is the whataboutism of this. So first of all, tax evasion versus like, you know, having nuclear secrets willy-nilly and classified information are two entirely different things. Um, and I've seen other people try to make comparisons. It was really interesting. I tuned in briefly to Fox last night, heard Congressman Byron Donalds talking about, but what about Wesley Snipes? What about Kodak Black? What about all of these folks? And it was like, yeah, Wesley Snipes, one, didn't pay taxes for a longer period of time, if, I, if I'm correct, and then tried to make a claim that he wasn't a resident of the, uh, 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 you know, a, a citizen of the United States and therefore wasn't subject to taxation, right? And the lesson here is that Hunter pleaded Wesley Snipes took it to court, right, and came up with a ridiculous legal argument that didn't pass muster. So that's why he got a harsher sentence. And I'd forgotten about this until I saw it on the Twitterverse, but it's important to point out that, like, Roger Stone also had a settlement that didn't get him jail time for not paying taxes for four years. So, like, they're just, like, you know, like, this isn't the first time this has happened. Uh, would, you know, some of us like to see people go to jail for, you know, things like not paying taxes? Perhaps. But it's not like this is some novel resolution uh, to a case. Like, this this happens a lot. It happens frequently. And it happens to people that folks on both sides of the aisle like. Chuck, one more element of this that I find interesting is that this Republican narrative that the Department of Justice is biased against Republicans gives favored treatment to Democrats, which made, as you under basically pointed out, made no sense, or, or I guess Allen did, made no sense during the Trump administration when you had Republicans in control uh, or, or Republican appointees uh, as the attorney general um, and in other uh, uh, Justice Department roles. But, but Chuck, today, John Durham, the special counsel who was investigating uh, the uh, uh, Department of Justice and how it handled the Russia investigation of interference cooperating with uh, uh, the Trump campaign. He's going to be testifying on Capitol Hill, and he is certain to help uh, the Republicans uh, uh, in Congress to advance this theory that justice is not at all blind, at least the Department of Justice isn't. Chuck? Yeah, uh, and that's, this is an argument that's raised by both sides when they don't like what is happening. Uh, and I think probably the reality is that, yeah, you may have a few bad actors, uh, maybe some prosecutors who play politics, but I think overall, I think we have to have faith or should have faith that the Justice Department is made up of professionals who are dedicated to doing their job as they see fit and are not beholden to one party or the other. They don't 
most of them don't owe their jobs to uh, to being uh, around the right side of, of an election. And certainly those who are professionals in DOJ, none of them have political appointments. Now, the very top people do, but those who are doing the day-to-day work do not. They're covered by civil service, and so I think they're out there doing the best that they can, often under difficult situations. Yeah, we're talking about FBI. It, 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 that's an important point, and, and some of our current Republican presidential candidates would like to change that. Um, and we're hearing that former President Trump and Ron, and Ron DeSantis talking about trying to make it easier to replace civil servants, uh, trying to increase the number of political appointees, trying to bring the Justice Department and other agencies under more direct political control. So I think that's something to be concerned about. Uh, let's talk about this Durham investigation. The Republicans here in the House are trying to revive you know, breathe life back into this Durham investigation, the results of which were were basically a bust. Um, so Durham yeah. was appointed by Bill Barr. He conducted this investigation for years, has spent tens of millions of dollars, and ended up with one plea deal uh, in a fairly minor case. And, and then uh, I think there are two cases that resulted in acquittals, um, yes. uh, very quick acquittals. Uh, so nothing uh, really, really came of this as far as misconduct in the way in which the Russia investigation uh, uh, went forward. Um, but it's feeding into this narrative, you know, that that Republicans in general and pre- former President Trump in particular are victims. Uh, and they are being targeted. Uh, and what, what's happening to them is a result of this uh, sort of unfair conduct uh, um, by the, you know, by the, uh, government agencies, especially the, the Department of Justice. Okay, thank you for that conversation. We're running really short on time, but I do want to see if we can bring up one more subject. Um, I was I love the fact that Chris Christie, who is out there punching away at Donald Trump as hard as he possibly can, with humor, uh, with you know, he's always been a smart guy and a good speaker. But here's why I bring it up today. Christie was asked whether he would sign the pledge or agree to the pledge that to get on the Republican presidential debate stage, he would support the eventual nominee of the party. And what Christie essentially said was this, I'll say anything to get on the stage, I'll decide later what I really want to do. And I mention that now because, Alan, um, it's fascinating that Brian Kemp, who has been Mm -hmm. at odds with Donald Trump now for years, has started speaking out against him pretty openly, mm-hmm. told CBS yeah. News, Robert Costa, well, yeah, if he's a nominee, I'll support him. Well, I think Christie's comment is well taken because you, you can pledge to support the candidate and then later you can decide, you know what, some more stuff has happened and I can't, and I can't, you know, I can't continue with that. I can't go along with that pledge. In Kemp's case, I kind of suspect that he will support Trump, at least formally, you know, he'll endorse him and then he will try to ignore him as much as possible. If Trump right. ends up as the Republican nominee, I got to get a quick comment from you, Chuck, and then you, Andre, because we're really running short. Yeah, well, Kemp, I think, still has some ambitions within the Republican Party. He knows he better be behind whoever the Republican presidential nominee is mm-hmm. if he wants to pursue those ambitions. Chris Christie, uh, I think mm-hmm. his career is largely behind him, and so he is out there in the demolition derby right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree with both Chuck and Allen, and I think the important part is red jersey, red jersey. Right. And and so like he's Brian Kemp will not support Joe Biden or a third party. 
Yeah, my point was not that Brian Kemp's trying to get on the presidential debate stage. I just find it interesting mm-hmm. that he's he says he'll be in for Trump if he needs to be. Out of time, Charles Bullock, Alan Abramowitz, Andre Gillespie. Thank you for a wonderful conversation today. We're back tomorrow with former mayor of Atlanta, Shirley Franklin. I'll see you all then. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care, stay healthy, and be good to one another. Bye-bye.